Simple Beep, episode 41, Technologies Deprecated at WWDC. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And this is our first episode after WWDC 2016. Our previous episode, we looked back at the history of WWDC, and we thought that would probably be all that we would do connected with that event, uh, because we weren't... We weren't going to really talk about the new releases, uh, new technologies that were coming out this year as part of Simple Beep, because that's not how we usually do things. But it turned out that there was a lot there that has uh, has some impact on technologies that have gone way, way back in the history of Apple and Next and the Macintosh. And we're going to focus on those today. But before we do that, in the last couple episodes, I think we've just run headlong into the topic uh, but this episode, we actually have a little bit of follow-up. So last time, we covered the 1997 Q&A session at WWDC with Steve Jobs. And one of the things that he talked about in there was the status of the Newton, which wasn't like uh, OpenDoc, it's dead, uh, but it was getting there soon. <laughs> and uh, he was talking about all the different PDA devices that he had tried, including the Newton, and how they were garbage, I threw them out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and one of those that we mentioned was the Motorola Envoy. And I think I mistakenly said that I thought that it was a, a Newton-based device. Uh, but it wasn't. It actually ran a different operating system called Magic Cap. And this operating system was created by a company called General Magic, which has a very direct tie to Apple and the Macintosh, because this was the company that Bill Atkinson and Andy Hertzfeld co-founded uh, with one other person after they left Apple. And they were working in this space of essentially mobile telephonic devices, PDAs, and their their operating system was very interesting for the time. It was released in 1994, and uh, we'll link to the Wikipedia article for it, which has a screenshot. And Magic Cap, there, there are many comparisons that you could make here. The one made... Uh, by Wikipedia is a little anachronistic. It says, well, it looks like Microsoft Bob. Um, but I would much more say that Microsoft Bob looks like Magic Cap because Magic Cap predated it by a year. <laughs> uh, so it's taking the desktop metaphor one step further, and it's got a picture of an actual desk with objects on it, like a Rolodex and a calendar, inbox, outbox, clock. I was thinking, I was looking at this and thinking, well, gee, in terms of the people who designed it, it sure looks like a nicely made hypercard stack to me. Yes, yeah. Uh, where you would actually build in these features, build in these graphics. It's grayscale as opposed to the one-bit black and white graphics of hypercard. The other thing that I immediately thought of was, this would be uh, a perfectly fitting glider level. <laughs> yeah, it's like the office level, the office room. So yeah, this operating system was fairly short-lived because, uh, well, no one really picked up on it. The Newton was ahead of its time. Magic Cap was similarly ahead of its time. And PDAs, as we knew them, uh, really came to be defined by the Palm OS in, in their heyday and then supplanted by the true smartphone devices, uh, not your Palm Treos and that kind of thing, but in the, in the iPhone and Android era after that. For another bit of follow-up, uh, we also go back to the Steve Jobs Q&A where he talked about his kind of futuristic vision 
where uh, at Next he kind of had thin clients everywhere and put his entire home directory in uh, on a server, on a centralized server. And one of the announcements from WWDC in 2016, almost a solid 20 years later, is that Apple is expanding iCloud Drive to also include your documents and desktop folders from your home directory uh, in these kind of centralized repositories that you can get to from any client running the latest versions of Apple system software. And so it's it was just a, a fun parallel to draw from our previous episode to something that became real um, in in 2016, we're essentially moving closer and closer towards having centralized networked home directories, the vision that Steve Jobs laid out in the late 90s. Right. And the difference here is going beyond something like Dropbox, where you have files that are on each computer, but there's perhaps one or perhaps every single one is kind of a canonical copy. And then you can do like selective sync. But here the notion is that these files and primarily live in iCloud Drive, which is terrifying to some of us. <laughs> and also the fact that it's like, well, it's just uh, seamlessly, uh, it'll seamlessly sync all the clutter on your desktop from one machine to another. It's no, then I, then I have it, have to see it everywhere. <laughs> uh, but it really was fascinating that I was sitting there thinking, this sounds extremely familiar, <laughs> especially since we had looked back at that. And it was, it was very interesting that, uh, like you said, 19 years, same event. Uh, that was a WWDC announcement. Yeah. And that, I think, brings us pretty well to our topic for this episode, which is that there were lots of interesting announcements at WWDC 2016 that had impacts for, you know, they're they're looking forward to the future and modern technologies that are going to underpin Mac and iOS and other platforms for years to come. But that means that getting rid of some things that have been around, not just for a few years, some of them dozens of years, you know, decades, decades old technologies that go all the way back to basically the original Macintosh. And uh, so I think we'll probably lead off with uh, the one that made John Syracuse the most happy. <laughs> Next up, let's talk about file systems. So yes, Apple announced kind of quietly, this came later, this came not in the keynote presentation, but in the platform State of the Union, that there is a new Apple file system coming. And I don't know that we were ever going to really talk about file systems on this podcast, because again, uh, see see every John Syracuse article and podcast in, in recent history, and we'll link up a couple of them uh, for exact critiques of why Apple needed a modern new file system. But the thing that would need to be replaced then is the one that we use currently, which is HFS Plus. And HFS Plus is the direct successor to HFS, the hierarchical file system. And I had not realized quite just how far back HFS went. I mean, if, if I remember the HFS, HFS Plus transition, but it never occurred to me that, oh yeah, HFS pretty much goes all the way back as long as, as the Mac has existed, although not quite. <laughs> so uh, it, it's interesting that HFS was introduced basically to be optimized for hard drives, whereas the original Macintosh standard configuration did not come with a hard drive. In fact, Apple didn't even sell 
a hard drive. Uh, and the first one that was available was, I believe it was called the Hard Drive 20 or Hard Disk 20. It was a 20 megabyte external hard drive. And at the release of that was when uh, HFS was introduced specifically for that new type of media. And there, some of the things that were in the original Macintosh file system just wouldn't cut it on a larger device because it, like the number of total files that you could have was so small that, well, you would never be able to fit that many files on a 400K floppy, but you certainly could on a 20 megabyte hard drive. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the actual age of this technology. So HFS is almost exactly the same age as you, Brian. Yeah, it's one day older than I am. We really weren't like missing something. We, we didn't miss the introduction of HFS in, in our lifetimes. Yeah. Uh, so at the risk of revealing any personally identifiable <laughs> information, HFS was introduced with System 2.1 on September 17th, 1985. These standard HFS volumes are actually still around and still supported if you have, I don't know, some ancient hard drive. Maybe a zip disk or something. I yeah, know. I don't even know how you would connect it to a modern Mac through a very Baroque series of adapters or something. But if you could connect an HFS volume to a Mac running El Capitan, it would still be able to read the files from it and presumably write files to it. Even though I don't think you're allowed to create new HFS disks that that was phased out, I think, in early OS X. Uh, but they won't be supported at all in macOS Sierra, which is coming the end of this year, later this year. And so it, even if you do manage to hook up a really, really old piece of media, uh, the operating system will not handle it natively. So I'm sure that the people who are doing things like digital archive work are... You know, scrambling now to figure out, uh, keep an old system uh, or keep a current system that then will last them for several years to come. Uh, and so that was the the main, the original hierarchical file system, HFS. But a lot of the grumbling you hear from John Syracuse and uh, the, the phrase that actually triggers the bell is HFS plus, the successor to HFS. And this was introduced with Mac OS 8.1 on January 19th, 1998. And it had a whole bunch of improvements over HFS. Uh, a lot of them having to deal with the growing volume size and file size. Uh, so for example, the maximum file size went from two gigabytes to eight exabytes, billions of gigabytes. Um, and the, the maximum number of files on a single volume went from like the 64,000, 65,000 to a little over 4 billion. It's kind of mind boggling now that the maximum number of total files was 65,535. I mean, obviously a, a well-known uh, number in relation to powers of two. Uh, but the fact that that was the total number for the entire disk. And and I bet if you go into like slash system in OS ten now and just pick a random folder and get info, there's going to be tens of thousands of files in each of them. Just because the way that modern Unix-based operating systems work is on tons and tons and tons of little files as opposed to a bunch of big files. And also thinking about when this transition was made in 1998 with uh, macOS 8.1, 
taking the maximum individual file size to over the, over two gigabytes. I mean, I definitely have files on my drive now that are greater than two gigabytes, and that's fine because I have a two terabyte drive. So it's you know, it's still like a tenth of a percent of the drive. Whereas then that seemed that seemed like a a limitation that you could theoretically exceed. Like I think we had on our Mac at that time, like a four gigabyte drive. So it's like, okay, yeah, sure. I could have a two gigabyte file if it filled half of my hard disk. Um, but that's no longer, no longer a limit. And I think, I think the new limitation that's pretty future was pretty future proof. I mean, that's going to last HFS plus all the way until it's final, final end. Even if like HFS, it gets supported for another 15 years of backward compatibility. I don't think we're going to be putting together eight exabyte files anytime soon, or even having storage media anywhere near that large. And uh, to kind of piggyback on that, um, we, we'll put a link to a copy of Apple's original tech note for HFS plus. This is extensive. <laughs> yes. Uh, but one of the notes is that like, yeah, one of the considerations for the increase in this file size is that like users are moving towards having more media on their Macs. And when I think about 1998, I think we were in, we were in eighth grade or no, we were in seventh grade about to go into eighth grade at this time. And I can kind of place that towards like the very, very beginning of digital music and starting to get MP3s. Uh, so like, of course, like that leads to, uh, video, and maybe short form video to long form video like movies. And we were a year or so away from the iMac TV and Firewire video being a big use case that was being pushed in Apple's marketing for their consumer products. And yeah, if you maxed out a, a recording on a digital camcorder and then transferred it over Firewire and you had, I don't know, two hours of consecutive video not broken up into smaller files sure you're going to go over 2 gigabytes. So this was a practical concern even though that the hard you know when we talked with Stephen Hackett about the specs on those machines the hard drive sizes seemed pretty modest especially with the early iMacs you know like 20 30 gigabytes but again the the difference of being able to have one or two files over that size when you have 20 or 30 gigs to play with instead of 4 or now having 2000 to play with it's it's a completely different game. And so HFS Plus was really necessary if people were going to be able to keep doing modern things with their Macs and not just, not in terms of all the behind the scenes stuff in terms of protecting your data and enabling fancy features, but just in terms of literally having having the place to put the files. And again, this was 1998, and this is essentially the file system we've been working with uh, since then. Again, like getting close to 20 years. Yeah, there have been some minor tweaks and updates here, like the addition of journaling, which I still don't entirely understand, but I I, I guess it's good <laughs> uh, or an improvement. Uh, some things that were added on later to deal with the more Unixy bits of OS X, because remember, this worked for both the classic Mac and the and Mac OS X, and of course, was you might be using the same drive uh, for both operating systems when if you were du dual booting in the transition period between the two. Ooh, a fun little aside, speaking of like using a drive on, on with different systems, uh, what would happen if you had a drive that you formatted with HFS Plus during this transition 
and maybe it was a it was removable media that you wanted to take to a slightly older Mac that was still only uh, recognizing HFS volumes in its operating system. Well, the volume would mount, but uh, it wouldn't be the the volume with your folders and your files. It would be a single file, uh, a read only simple text document named where have all my files gone with underscores underneath the, in, in, instead of spaces, which is very unmac like. Yeah. And I also thought that the, the phrasing there, I, w- I was looking for this. Uh, we'll, we'll have a link to a document showing that uh, with some screenshots in our notes. I was looking for this and I was getting the wording wrong because I find the wording to be kind of unnatural, like very formal uh, where have all my files gone? Right? I was searching for things like, where did all my files go? Um, things like that. And then I finally found the correct wording and realized that it had the underscores in it. And I'm like, oh, this is this is perfect. All I have to do is search for this and Google will treat it as one word. And certainly all of the re- results that I will get back will be about this particular feature of HFS+. And instead, all of my first pages of results were um, links to YouTube videos and apparently there's some kind of like sweet ambient track by by some instrumental music group and i could find nothing about this band but they have like they've keyword squatted on this obscure hfs plus feature and and they own it on the internet <laughs> but yeah it was an interesting little piece of hfs plus that was part of the of the format i wonder jeez i wonder if that was ever dropped in later versions of HFS, uh, HFS Plus, where it became HFS J or HFS X. Those were those ones with journaling or additional features later on that were added on in OS X. Or whether the disk on my iMac right now still has this little wrapper. Uh, you know, because that was how it worked. Was Part of the HFS Plus specification was just to have this little bit at the beginning, uh, beginning and end, that was a fake HFS volume with that single file on it. And then everything else was just kind of hidden away. I, I kind of hope so because the contents of that file are basically like reassuring you that your files haven't been deleted. You're just viewing this volume on uh, with an operating system that, that doesn't understand it. You need to upgrade to the new hotness, macOS 8.1. Here's how you can buy it. So I really do hope that somewhere on your hard disk that was probably produced in calendar year 2015 uh that there is a little thing about buying mac os 8.1 on it that that would be delightful <laughs> if anyone knows for sure if anyone wants to delve into those specifications because they are lengthy <laughs> uh and let us know whether that's still around that that would be fun another fun uh, artifact of the classic macOS years, and especially around HFS and HFS Plus, was the little system utility disk first aid. And I think this is where people learned the hard way about what HFS was and how it operated. Because this is one of the things, if if you're not the kind of person who's into file systems and into what features they enable on computers and low-level operating systems code, you basically never want to deal with your file system. You're pretty much only ever dealing with your file system if something has gone wrong. And the fact of the matter was that in HFS and HFS Plus, even though HFS Plus tried to put in some safeguards uh, as it massively increased those numbers of files and file sizes that you could have, 
basically they were using the same kind of hierarchical structure, uh, which is the B tree, uh, which is a, it's an optimized type of tree structure that's used for basically keeping track of where all the files are, what size they are, and pointing your computer to the correct physical spot on disk to find a file and manipulate it. And like I said, you don't want to know about that. You want to know that a file is on your desktop. You don't want to know what sectors of a spinning hard drive or now what you know little chips of flash are actually storing that. And if you have to deal with that, you have problems. So if you did have those problems and you were able to uh, boot off of a, a system CD or something and run disk first aid on your drive, uh, you would get to verify disk and repair disk, something that kind of still exists in the modern OS X disk utility. They got rid of verify, I think. I think you can just you just proceed immediately to repair, which was the advice for, for many years uh, because it took so dang long. And all that it's, you know, what disk first aid is doing is there are all these files that have these trees full of information. And it's basically, usually when you perform a disk operation, it looks up a single thing in the tree. But here it's basically crawling through every piece of the tree and checking them all against each other to make sure that they line up properly. Mm-hmm. And going back to something we said a, a little bit earlier, this is actually where I got a little bit of appreciation for how many files were on my hard disk. Because back in the day, it would be like uh, X of Y files remaining to be uh, verified or repaired. And I remember like in the days where it would crest a couple thousand, I'd be like, whoa. I need to delete some stuff. Yeah, four, five, six thousand. And the the full tree that it would go through uh, had some some phrases for like each each bit or each block of the file system uh, that like uh, we've we've pasted here in our show notes. And I'm getting a little bit of flashbacks, a little bit of PTSD. These are these are interestingly they're in the order that they would fly by in disk first aid or crawl by when you got to the ones that had to actually check the. Uh, the information against every every file on disk and read the full file back to see if you know it was the right size or not. Um, and this is also, as I looked in the HFS Plus specification, this is just literally the order in which these things are encoded in the specification. So it's just following one for one, just like check that everything is in place. The volume header, the catalog file, the extents overflow file, the attributes file, the allocation file, parentheses bitmap and the startup file. Yeah, the one that always troubled me was the extents overflow file. And it would often take a long time. And it's like that that just sounds like things are going wrong. Things are overflowing on my disk. <laughs> and then uh later on in the later versions of HFS Plus, they added uh they added hard linking because this was an uh a Unix feature that was then brought over to OS 10 and has been used for some interesting features since then uh when photos.app was released and they did the uh migration of iPhoto libraries to photos.app libraries it used hard links so instead of taking your entire multi gigabyte photos library and making a copy of it on disk to use for photos.app it made hard links to all of them and then would only create new files and kind of copy them out of there as things changed in the future. And this led to weird things where like you would have the iPhoto library and the photos library. And if you got info on each of them, because it would follow all the hard links, 
it would tally up. It would be like, you have 50 gigabytes of photos here, and you have 50 gigabytes of photos here, except they're only taking you know, 51 gigabytes on your actual disk. Uh, so that was one of the uses of hard links. And probably the use of hard links that people, uh, most, the most Mac consumers use is Time Machine. Mm-hmm. And Time Machine, again, in order to avoid copying every file over again and immediately running out of backup disk space after like three backups, uh, what it does is it hard links files that are unchanged and then copies over files that are changed. But what this means is that every time that it runs a backup, it's just creating massive numbers <laughs> of hard links. And again, like getting up into millions and millions and millions of these. And one of the things that's crazy about the way that those are tracked is that they are tracked by each having a single hidden file in a folder. So there's a director, hidden directory at the root level of an HFS plus drive that keeps track of the hard links and they're just a, in a flat folder structure. So there's like half a million hard link files in there. It's like, this is, this is the giant master index. If you need a file, go look for it somewhere else. Yeah. It's, it's kind of a, a marvel that this file system has existed into these modern times. And it really does break down. As, I mean, time machine is the most taxing thing that you will ever do with HFS plus. And I have had to repair a number of of time machine drives using disk first aid. And it, it does. It just chugs through that <laughs> millions and millions of hard links. And that's what's damaged and will sometimes make it so it's like, oh, time machine, your time machine backup is corrupt. Erase everything and start over. It's like, well, that completely defeats the purpose of time machine, which is to have an incremental backup that goes, you know, that you can retrieve a file from two years ago if you need it. And uh, so sometimes disk first aid comes to the rescue there. Um, you let it crank away and do its thing. And then, of course, this is HFS Plus and HFS, the original, in a nutshell. You would go through and sometimes it would say, maybe if you just did the verify step, it would say that errors found the disk needs to be repaired with lots of red text, usually. Like, this is bad. Repair the disk. Then you would hit repair. Sometimes it would say the disk was unable to be repaired. And should you give up at this point and just throw your disk out and reformat it? No, you should hit repair again. Sometimes five, six, seven, eight times, especially before HFS Plus, that could actually fix things. <laughs> and then you'll finally get through and the little green message will come up and you're like, yes, I want to be very reassured that my that everything is fine with my disk. All of its file structure checks out. And it would tell you that the disk, quote, appears to be okay. <laughs> as far as we know, we can't really ever be sure, but it appears to be okay, which is the last thing you want to hear when you need assurance that your files are not going to all go away in a puff of smoke. <laughs> uh, so I think it would be fitting to uh, close out our segment on HFS Plus with some words from maybe its most famously outspoken critic. John Syracuse. Yeah, and this is from his Lion review. So a few years ago, um, but that was kind of the beginning of his crusade uh, for a modern file system. And he says, HFS Plus has served Apple well and probably for far longer than its designers ever imagined it would. This was eight years ago, <laughs> nine years ago. <laughs> um, 
But like all the other Apple-related products and technologies that fit this description, for example, classic macOS, Carbon, and PowerPC, there comes a time when things once treasured must pass from this world. And so HFS Plus has not entirely been shown the door, but it knows that its new successor, the Apple File System, abbreviated APFS, not AFS. Yeah. There's always some weird names in file systems. There's another one um, called BTRFS, which stands for B-Tree File System, and apparently the official pronunciation is ButterFS. So welcome Apple File System to the club, and hierarchical file system, you you handled a lot of disks from like the Mac 2 era all the way until today. And uh, when your successor is ready, you will not be missed. <laughs> The next thing we want to cover is somewhat related. It's not the system for, you know, categorizing and filing documents at rest, but rather how do these documents uh, uh, get transferred from one volume to another? And so the next thing we'd like to discuss is the AFP, the Apple Filing Protocol. Which is formerly the Apple Talk Filing Protocol. And also, I did not know that it was filing instead of file. (laughs) Right, right, yeah. Um, so the, this is another thing that's like, wow, we've been using pretty much this, a different version of this for a long time. The AFP, uh, goes back a long ways. Some say as far back as system six, uh, definitely some pieces of it were in system seven. Um, it was kind of under the Apple share umbrella, which like Ed mentioned was, uh, comprised lots of different ways to network and file share, uh, including, the very problematic Apple Talk, which always gave uh, my family's limited network problems. We just never even bothered to try to network computers at home. I mean, the first time that I ever used AFP was in college after I had a portable Mac running OS X in you know in places with a with a really serious hardwired network for all of campus and also Wi-Fi. I mean, that that was where I first began thinking, oh yeah, like uh like sharing files over the network would be a good idea. Yeah. And I and looking at the history of the Apple filing protocol, it looks like really the the version that uh set itself apart from all the previous ones was version 3.0 of the AFP, which came out with OS 10 server, an early version of OS 10 server at that 10.0.3. Um, so this version 3.0 um, had a lot of improvements. And I think one of the major ones is that it could work over TCP IP. So it was like this, this common network protocol and not <laughs> dependent on like the crippling Apple talk for like very proprietary things. Again, kind of going back to what Steve Jobs alluded to frequently in his 1997 Q&A, that's like the, the future of the Mac, the immediate future of the Mac needs to be networking. And right now, the way the Mac networks is too proprietary. It needs to get onto the broader internet. Um, so you can see how the Apple filing protocol going over TCP IP is one of those things. But there are also some things that's like, wow, how did this wait until oh, the OS X era to um, have like UTF-8 encoded file names? And along with uh, OS X in general, the file names could be over 31 characters long. Oh, that's an interesting other piece of HFS, which is that at least from HFS+, Plus. I think it was from HFS Plus onward, uh, there was full support for 255 character file names, except Finder was just like, no, I refuse. (laughs) 
<laughs> until OS 10, it didn't take it full advantage of the file system capability where you could have things that were a nice, sensible length. Yeah, I think actually the same probably goes to uh, the file size. Like, sure, you could have, uh, with HFS Plus, you could have a file that was eight exabytes large, but uh, I don't even think the Finder, certainly not like the classic macOS Finder, would understand what to do with that. And uh, and speaking of uh, sizes, the version 3.0 of the AFP, again, like very early days of OS X, allowed the maximum SharePoint size, basically like the volume that that you're connecting to or sharing out, rose from four gigabytes to two tebibytes. A, a unit that I have never really contemplated. Same. Uh, so I guess like, like you know, it's the difference of um, like a thousand uh, kilobytes or whatever, whatever thing of bits that you're raising to a, a power versus uh, the true 1024 that you're raising to a power because like some things are lost. And so the things we all know, kilobyte, megabyte, gigabyte are the, like the base 10, a thousand. If you ever look at the fine print on a Apple tech specs or on the product packaging itself, there will be some something down at the bottom where it says one gigabyte equals one billion bytes. Just like to make that obvious. Yeah. So uh, if if you have like the second syllable with this bi, like tebibyte, gibibyte, mebibyte, those are like the true powers of two. And it's bi for binary. Like the, that, they are the powers of two, and yeah, the the larger that we get, you know, kilobyte, it was a ten, one thousand, one thousand twenty four. Oh, it's a really close approximation. Then go up another level. Oh, megabyte, it's still close. Then you just keep multiplying it, and, and they start to diverge. Like it, it starts to get farther and farther away. Once you're up to terabyte versus tebibyte, the percent difference starts getting more and more. But all of this is is to say that uh, around macOS ten. Uh, the transition from OS 9 to OS 10, the Apple filing protocol hit a big milestone. And that's basically what we've been working for, working with rather, uh, to connect to different file servers um, within the Finder. And like, I think far and wide, this is the the main source of my Finder crashes and hangs and overall woes. It's trying to do something through that, like connect to menu item in the Finder, uh, and definitely just like you, Ed, like in college, trying to connect to shared servers on the college network or, uh, even trying to do like limited, uh, uh, wide area connections just from the finder. If you like, if you try to like disconnect from, from a mounted network volume and just like in, and you sneeze or something, the finder is not going to know what to do and it's going to hang forever. Yeah. And this is not really a, this is more a finder problem than an AFP specific problem, because I know at my office we have uh, some mixed use of different network protocols. So our graphics and multimedia team is all on Macs, naturally. And uh, and they have a Mac Mini with a very nice large hard drive attached to it. And that's shared over AFP because they find that it works the best for them. Whereas basically all of our other office files are uh, externally located and they're on a uh, cross-platform network share that's using SMB or SIFS, uh, which is a, I mean, from the user perspective, very, very similar type of, of file system or network sharing protocol. 
And uh, people from the Windows world may know, uh, or especially the Linux world may know as SMB as Samba, although that's actually like an open implementation of SMB, which is the server message block uh, framework or protocol. Um, and SIFS stands for the Common Internet File System. And you get into weird things with all of these protocols, like you know, like tech support. At, at one point, like the Macs were not connecting properly to our network drive at work. And they're like, oh, um, change the prefix from SMB colon slash slash to SIFS colon slash slash. It's like they're identical at this point. And they're like, just just do it. <laughs> Uh, that's so funny when I, I did, um, it for all four years at college and I was like the Mac guy, uh, because still when I went to college, the majority of the the students were using PCs. Um, but that was, that was a trick that they taught me. Like one of my first days is if a Mac can't get to like a certain network share to get like a shared resource or something for a class, just change SMB to CIFS. Well, the, the funny thing here though, is that unlike, uh, with the, file system for local drives where Apple is creating a new uh, a new system for themselves with the needs of their platforms in mind because uh, APFS, the Apple file system, it, they say is going to eventually go across all of their devices that have storage. So, you know, everything from the TV to the watch to Macs. Um, but here, uh, the reason that AFP is going away is that those new Apple file system volumes won't be able to be shared over AFP because of presumably some incompatibility. And instead, what are they going to be shared over? SMB and SIFs. <laughs> this technology that basically started started independently and then was mostly under the control of Microsoft. And then, uh, then there was Samba and these other... I mean, it's pretty openly implemented now. But that's the way that... Uh, these are going to go forward in the future. And I presume that, you know, this is for explicitly connecting to a particular SharePoint or particular server. Whereas I presume that things like iCloud Drive are using something completely different uh, under the covers where where it's just like there you're saying connect me to a, a connect me to the thing that's associated with my iCloud account, not the not a particular server yeah all right so <laughs> that's pretty off in the weeds with some obscure technology but really long-standing technology going back to system six going back to system two <laughs> um but one thing that's uh a little bit more accessible to everybody even you know like the tech press are going to have to get used to the fact that there's been a big name change that was announced at wwdc and that is of course that our our new version of the operating system is going to be macOS. So we figured we would go through a little history of what the the operating system on Apple's uh, desktop and laptop uh, hardware has been. And so uh, originally it was just system and the version number. Yeah, if you wanted to give the full name, it was Macintosh System Software 1.0, 2.1, etc. And the version numbers... Uh, if you look at, uh, there's some nice charts on, I believe it's timeline of Mac OS on Wikipedia. We'll put it in the show notes up until, up until system seven, it was a mess in terms of the version numbers and everything. And, you know, yeah, you could talk about system six, system 6.1, but like everything was numbered differently. So 
the system file and the finder have different version numbers and those one of those might be the same as the overall system version and then with system 6 uh they introduced the multi finder and in the first version of system 6 6.0 it was multi-finder version 1.0 and regular finder version 6.0. But then just to like, this is what they've done. Like with the, um, like with TVOS recently, uh, it became, you know, TVOS nine out of, out of nowhere. <laughs> they did the same thing with multi-finder where multi-finder went from version 1.0 to version 6.0, but version 6.0 came with system software 6.1. It was very confusing. But in the early days, it was just called System. We just called System 7, System 7.5. But then we got to 7.6. And this is where we start first calling the operating system the Mac OS. That's a capital M in Mac, a space, and then capital O, capital S. That becomes important many, many years later. <laughs> it does. And uh, and this is, I think this is what most people think of when they refer to the classic Mac uh, because the Mac space OS lasted all the way up until the, the big change to Mac OS 10. So this is Mac OS version 7.6 all the way through the, the last release, 9.2.2. And the reason for the name change was to make the Mac part of the name, uh, you know, because of Macintosh system software, was to make the Mac part of the name more visible because this was at the time when Apple was not the only creator of computers that could run the Macintosh system software. Uh, it was in the the height of the briefly lived, uh, <laughs> the height of the brief cloning era, where there were other companies that were making uh, Mac clones and licensing the software to put on them. And so Apple wanted to make sure that if you bought a machine from uh, Power Computing, that when you started it up, it still said Mac somewhere. And then the new Unix-powered system launched. It was Mac OS X. Uh, and this kind of gets back into like weird versioning numbers just when you're reading it out loud because the, the name of the operating system is still capital M, Mac, space, capital O, capital S, space, the Roman numeral 10, and X. This is not Mac OS X, as a lot of people <laughs> would say. Even I had to train myself out of that. I mean, that took a couple years to really get it down. It's OS 10, OS 10, OS 10. Um, but I mean, by the time that we got to saying the version numbers over 10.1, 10.2, 10.3, made it clear. This naming scheme lasted from the original release of OS 10, 10.0, all the way through 10.6, Snow Leopard. And around Snow Leopard, like at the end of Snow Leopard, we got the Mac App Store and we're starting to get into the uh, iOS or rather iPhone at the time, uh, being a, the hot new thing and lots of innovations that want to come back to the Mac. Uh, and so <laughs> maybe some of that is that, that the Mac isn't that important, <laughs> the Mac part of it, because, uh, one of the things that Steve Jobs says when, uh, the original iPhone is launched is that what's going to run it, it, or what is it going to run on? It runs on OS 10. It doesn't say Mac OS X because it's little devices in a Mac. So in uh, so at version 10.7 of the operating system, Lion, Apple drops the Mac, and it's now just OS X. Spelled out, <laughs> that's capital O, capital S, space, X. And in those early days of the iPhone, the, the operating system there was called iPhone OS. 
as opposed to iOS, which came in, what was it, iOS 4? And at that point, we were looking ahead to uh, to many devices running something known as iOS. At that point, the iPod Touch was already out. The iPad was on the horizon. And so that's where we've lived for the recent history, is uh, our Macintosh operating system is just OS ten from 10.7 through the whatever the final point release of El Capitan 10.11.x uh, will be. And so that brings us to the big announcement at WWDC, which is that uh, Tim Cook actually put these up on, on the board, uh, up on, on the projector, in massive projector, <laughs> in the Bill Graham Auditorium and goes, basically, which one of these is not like the others? Because we've got, at this point, we have iOS, tvOS, and watchOS, and all of those have lowercase portion of the name, no space, and then OS. Um, you know, people made fun of that a little bit with uh, watchOS <laughs> when, when it first came out. And, you know, there's still a little bit of that now with, with, with macOS. Um, but it's true, the, the new name is macOS Sierra, and uh, the version number has has faded away a little bit as well, even though... Uh, it's going to be 10.12. And that was one of the, the tough things in the Mac OS X era was how do you specify which version you were talking about, especially if you wanted to use the numbers because, you know, after you got up to five or six big cats, it was kind of hard to keep track of which one went after the other. Um, and so like the full name would be something like, <laughs> it was like Mac OS ten. Snow Leopard version 10.6 or something like that. Because you didn't want to say Mac OS 10 10.0, Mac OS 10 10.1, because that's silly. But you couldn't also just say Mac OS 10.6, because then where did you put the X? The X went away. So these names have had some, some troubles all along. <laughs> um, but I think that the new system is, is going to be pretty clean. We're going to call it macOS Sierra. We're going to have macOSs for the foreseeable future. Uh, it looks pretty clear that uh, unlike when when the Mac name went away in OS X, we thought, oh, gee, maybe the Mac is going to be less important. Maybe the Mac will fade out in the next few years. It's like, well, no, now it's back in the name and and the commitment to the Mac and its operating system seems to really be there for now. But there were no no grand theatrics other than the just kind of, you know, cute juxtaposition of the names and the slides and and Craig Federighi going, yep, it's it's exactly what you thought it would be. Uh, there, there were no coffins. There was no grand ceremony of getting rid of the, the 10 or the X uh, from the name of the system. One last thing uh, that is on its way out uh, as of now and was featured in the keynote in WWDC is they featured Swift 3.0. And this is not this was not a brand new announcement. This was announced back in December of 2015. But one of the things that's going away in Swift version 3 are all of the NS prefixes that go ahead of all of these different library names. I remember when I first saw uh, all of these NS class names, NS this, NS that, NS application view or something like that. And it's like, why is everything called NS? Does it stand for like namespace? But why do, why do they keep making people type NS over and over again? And the answer is, well, it stands for next step. It goes way, way back. Way, way back. And this is actually the oldest, 
I suppose, of any of these technologies that uh, that is going going away. Well, Objective C isn't going away entirely yet. Um, you can still write a iOS app entirely in Objective C with no Swift code in it. Submit it to the App Store, get it approved, and it runs on all the devices. But it's clear that the push for the future is to move to Swift in combination with Objective C, and then eventually all Swift. And there are 100% Swift applications on the store. And uh, the new Swift Playgrounds app, first-party app from Apple, is 100% Swift. And once people get to 100% Swift 3.0, there's going to be no more NS. Um, And also no more Objective-C. And Objective-C goes back, predates the Macintosh, actually. It was created in 1983, and it was originally called the Object-Oriented Precompiler, which (laughs) was abbreviated OOPC, and I like to think was pronounced oopsie. (laughs) (laughs) And so this was an add-on to C to give it these object-oriented features. And this was uh, created by a company called Stepstone. And they were looking for a primary user of this technology, and that happened to be Next, who licensed Objective-C they, object, uh, they licensed the code base, they licensed the, the name, and then worked out like a relicensing deal so that StepZone could keep using it in the future. But it became essentially property of Next in 1988. Uh, while the Mac is doing its own thing, Next is off doing their own uh, something different, and they're creating NextStep, which eventually became OpenStep, and then uh, was the thing that... <laughs> saved Apple's operating system game after the Copeland project went down in flames. And that's how a whole influx of Objective-C came into the Mac. And then, as you said just a few minutes ago, Brian, OS X, the the OpenStep and NextStep successor, became the underlying technology for the very first iPhone. And so all the applications there started being written in Objective-C, and NSs went everywhere. (laughs) Um, there was the, uh, it was a publication or website called NS Hipster, uh, that was like all about, uh, Objective-C and, you know, best practices in, in Objective-C programming. And so these two little letters that were a vestige of Steve Jobs' second company, uh, were, really are still everywhere if you're a Mac or iOS developer, but they are on their way out. And you think, okay, well, this is like not a big announcement in, in some respects. Like we're really, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel here for like things that are going, think old things that are going away. But, uh, I, it blurs together a little bit for me because I watch both the keynote and the state of the union. But I think even in the keynote, they put up a couple slides that were when they were doing the Swift three overview, there was like, look at this really long, uh, code snippet that just does like a couple things. And in Swift 3, and then they did like a little, you know, keynote transition, like whoosh, it all goes away and like all of the, you know, <laughs> all of the things that are just like, you know, URL parameter has attribute, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like attribute parentheses. <laughs> They're like, we are really cleaning this up. So it's not that the technology is going away, but uh, a little piece of history that has really been uh, self-propagating in the iOS era is going to uh, slowly fade away, and those last vestiges of of next step 
in your phone, which doesn't even really make a whole heck of a lot of sense, um, will will eventually be gone once we're once we've got new iPhones that run on Apple file system and apps 100% written in Swift three. It's not going to be today or tomorrow, but it's it's coming soon. And really, those are the, the the big things that tie back to the usual realm of our podcast that were affected by this year's Very Modern, WWDC. They were the things that were enough for us to notice as we were sitting there watching the videos going, wait, hang on, that thing is, that thing is, you know, we're not replacing a, updating a technology that's three, four, five years old. Like, we're, we're going back to some really foundational stuff that's been hanging on for longer than it should. And there are some other smaller things, maybe some more recent things, uh, like for example, File Vault, which is a, a product of the the OS X era, um, is not currently supported in the current uh, pre-release of the new Apple file system. Um, so, since the new Apple file system natively supports encryption, uh, it may suggest that that File Vault as a branded service might not be long for this world. Well, I think that what's going to happen with file vault here is that this will just become file vault three. There was the ill-fated file vault one, which uh, everyone said basically don't use. And then file vault two was a complete rewrite and works much better. I don't even know if file vault one volumes are still supported anymore. That would be the kind of thing that, you know, even more than uh, even more so than like the HFS HFS plus transition where you get this little message, like where have my files gone? Like if you have an encrypted drive, it's not even going to tell you anything. Like, it's not going to tell you anything. It's just going to, if you don't support that decryption method, like you're going to get absolutely nothing off of there. Things will change, but uh, probably need some backwards compatibility there for a while. One other thing that uh, I know some developers were kind of remarking that was still around is that there's some uh, some vestigial support for uh, 32-bit processors. And I think this is only on iOS, because I, I, I looked around and I believe it was with Lion that, either Snow Leopard or Lion, that uh, the Mac OS no longer supported 32-bit hardware. And there was very little of it in the Intel era. So it was kind of a clean break uh, power PC. It was just like the very first couple uh, core solo and core duo Macs had 32-bit Intel processors. But there are plenty of uh, the A-series chips still around um, in older iPads, iPod Touches, um, probably not many people using phones that still have them. Um, and, and they're still supported. Um, I, I believe that everything's 62-bit by, by default. And again, it's one of those things that if you're just an ordinary user, you're probably not going to think about it unless there's something that, that winds up breaking because it, it requires some 32-bit backwards compatibility mode. But yeah, overall, there uh, there have been a couple technologies that have lasted uh, much longer than I think anyone anticipated, and uh, and it's, it'll be it'll be bittersweet to see some of them go. The bitter part, really, only for the nostalgia. The sweet part, because like we're finally getting some modern equivalents of uh, of things that are are really important to the way our devices work. So yeah, we're going to have, as usual, a uh, pretty comprehensive show notes document here. If you want to uh, go back and uh, and relive all of the nitty gritty details of file systems, etc., um, we'll link those up on our website at simplebeep.com. You can find all of our episodes, including uh, the previous one about WWDC is probably a good good reference. 
um, at simplebeep.com slash episodes. If you'd like to contact us, we have a contact form on our website, or you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at simple underscore beep. You can find each of us individually on Twitter as well. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks, and we'll see you next time for perhaps a topic that's less (laughs) forward-looking.